saying, let's throw off his fetters, his laws. Let's throw them off because we don't like having someone over us. We don't like having someone above us. We don't like having someone dictate the laws that we are supposed to keep. We want to be our own master, our own king, our own sovereign. But God, if we were to be our own king and our own sovereign, that would actually be the worst thing for us. You being our king, you being over us is the best thing for us. So Father, I pray that we would grasp that. We would feel that. We would find joy in submitting to you, in seeing ourselves as so small, seemingly insignificant in the grandeur and glory of who you are. But we need your help to do that because a fleshly heart and a fleshly mind will not see these realities as good, as beautiful, as lovely. We will kick against them. And that's why we turn to your word and we ask that you would open our eyes to see what we are to see, what we're supposed to see and hear from your word such that we would glory in our significant insignificance in light of who you are. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Give us grace this morning to see. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1. While you are turning to Habakkuk chapter 1, the text that we are going to be talking about this morning just reminded me of a story that I heard many years ago about a farmer. And the farmer had horses, and these horses decided one day to break through a fence and leave, leaving the farmer with no horses whatsoever. No horses. The farmer's neighbor came over, and the farmer's neighbor said, How unlucky is that? Your horses are gone. They're nowhere to be found. Look around. They're gone. You've lost your horses. How unlucky is that? And the farmer simply responded by saying, We'll see. We'll see. A few days later, all of the farmer's horses came back and they came back with a beautiful stallion following behind them. The neighbor came over again and said, wow, you got all of your horses back. How lucky is this? To which the farmer replied, well, we'll see. A few days later, the farmer's son tried to ride that stallion. And as he was attempting to ride the stallion, he got bucked off the horse and broke his leg. And the neighbor came over and said, how unlucky is this? And the farmer said, well, we'll see. A few weeks later, the army came to recruit young men who were able to fight for their country. And they saw that the man's son, the farmer's son, was on crutches and therefore could not serve. And so they left, and the son was able to live at peace in his home, to which the neighbor responded, oh, how lucky. You see, we, we often make very quick assumptions at the circumstances that we see where we think this is unlucky, this is bad, this is good, this is lucky, this is perfect. And then when terrible circumstances creep into our lives, maybe like a hurricane blowing in, maybe like that earthquake last night just rattling the fiber of your being, we ask this question that's a timeless question. Why do bad things happen? Can good come out of bad? Obviously, the story that I told at the beginning is trying to show how good can come out of bad. But what about when the bad just goes on and on and on and never ends and doesn't seem to produce anything? Is there a purpose in that? What's God doing? When it seems like God is far off, inactive, in the face of injustice and evil, and you're crying out to God saying, God, why aren't you acting? What about when something seems just purely evil? There is so much evil in the world, and you look and you say, there's no way this is going to bring any good out of anything. Why won't God stop it? All of these questions are questions that are brought up in the book of Habakkuk. You remember last week we studied Habakkuk's lament, 
And many of you were able to uh, talk with me after the sermon. And by God's grace, that sermon was a ministry to our souls. I think the biggest response that I heard from so many of you is, I didn't know that I could talk this way to God. Bring him my sorrows. Bring him my frustrations. Bring him everything. Being completely authentic with him and transparent. Again, bring your pain, not your pride, but bring it to him. And just like we talked about last week that Our study through lament last week is not an exhaustive study, right? We could do an entire sermon series on lamenting in the Bible and what it looks like practically in our lives. In the same way this morning, we're going to look at the so-called problem of evil, and we're not going to be able to exhaustively understand it. This, again, is something that would take an entire sermon series, but I believe that there are four realities we will see about God and his character that we can drop anchor into in the midst of difficulty, sorrow, suffering, evil, In the midst of all the difficulties going on in the world, we can drop our anchor into four specific realities of God and his character in the midst of those stormy moments. So let's read our text this morning as God responds to Habakkuk's lament. And as we read these, we're going to pull out four different realities that just point us to the goodness and the gracious nature of our God. Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 5 and reading all the way down to verse 11. This is God's response to Habakkuk's lament. Look among the nations. Observe and see. Be astonished and wonder. Because I am doing something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded, they are feared, their justice and authority originate within themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings, and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress. They heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. Father, as we prayed earlier, we need your help to discern, to see, and to glory and cherish these realities. To glory in these realities will only be possible through your Spirit doing a work in and through us, the Holy Spirit, as we pray every Sunday, completely dependent upon you, renouncing any form of self-reliance. We need you We cannot see these things apart from you. So please be gracious to us and open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word, which will excite our souls to worship and to wonder and to wait. We love you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, blessed Trinity, work now in our midst. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Four different realities of who God is. They are all seen in this response that God gives to Habakkuk, and they are all a refuge in the midst of the storm. They're a refuge for us. And the first of these four realities is very simply, number one, God hears our cries and graciously responds. God hears our cries and graciously responds. Before we dive into any of these specific verses in God's response, we have to just say right off the bat, it's a miracle that God responds to Habakkuk. It's a miracle that God hears, that he cares, that he listens, and that he responds. This is nothing that Habakkuk is deserving of. It's not like he has done something to grab God's attention and to force him to respond. This is God graciously reaching down into human history and saying, I'll speak to your difficulties. It's not like Habakkuk was saying, I'm just having a great morning, God. I just have one quick question for you. Can you please answer this? No, he was struggling. He was lamenting. He was arguing. There was a complaint that was brought to say, God, I need answers here. I don't know what's going on. What are you doing? God could easily have said, sorry, don't come to me that way. He could easily have said, you know what? You just need to trust. Just stop and trust. 
but he responds. Brothers and sisters, he responds. And notice how he responds. If you go back to Habakkuk's lament, verse 3, Habakkuk is going to say, look and observe. Verse 4, he's going to say, justice doesn't proceed. And verse 2 and 3 together, he's saying that uh, uh, violence is abounding. So number 1, look and observe God. Number uh, 2, justice isn't proceeding. And number 3, violence is abounding. And in God's response, verse 5, he's going to say, hey, I will look and observe, and you look and observe. He's going to say in verse 7, justice will proceed. Justice is going to proceed. And in verse 9, yes, violence is going to happen, but I will judge it. God answers all of the the objections that Habakkuk is raising. God's going to speak to it. He's going to respond to it. He hears our cries and he responds. Brothers and sisters, God hears your cries to him and he responds. He hears you when you weep. He hears you when you mourn. He hears you when you lament. And he responds. But you say, I don't know the last time that I remember the response. I don't know the last time I remember God's answer. I don't really feel like God's answering. Well, I think there's two reasons why we don't feel like God's answering. Two reasons why we don't usually feel or see God's answer to us. Reason number one, we tend to not see how God is answering. We tend to not see how God is answering our prayers, our requests. We tend to not see how he's answering them. Many of you remember uh, Tim Regan. Tim Regan was uh, one of our founding elders of our church. He's since moved to Carson City. You all know Jeff Hawkins, who is uh, an elder at our church. You all know Phil Gill, who is a deacon at our church. These are amazing men of God. Uh, they are leaders in God's uh, precious church. And they are also incredibly amazing craftsmen. They, they have built things that are just unbelievable. They're unreal, the things that they built. Tim built this huge playground thing. Uh, Jeff built this, um, this big, huge playhouse in the backyard overlooking the pool. Uh, Phil built a lot of our add-on to, to the house when we had to do some work on our house. They have done amazing work. And many of you have seen it. Many of you have even benefited from some of the things that they've done. So it'd be like if I see something that Tim, Jeff, and Phil have made. I look at something and I see it and I go, that's magnificent. And then I walk to their garage and I pick up a tool and I say, wow, tool, you did an amazing job. You just, what an amazing job you did building that. Now, did the tool build uh, the, the structure? No. Obviously, it was used in building, but we would never go to the tool and say, thank you. We'd go to the person and say, well done. You are the one using the tools to bring about what you are wanting. In the exact same way, God is the one who's building the house in our lives. He's building the structures in our lives. But we tend to only stare at the tools that he uses and praise those tools. We don't really do that ever in real life, but we do it spiritually. We do that when we ask God to work, and then he works using some means, some tool. And we stare at the tool, and then we wonder, did God even do anything? Maybe it's a doctor. Maybe it's a medical device that God uses that brings healing. Maybe it's insurance that covers all the costs of the damages to whatever happened. Maybe it's kind words of a friend that are brought in at the exact right moment to encourage your heart and give you faith. Whatever it is, we tend to just not see how God is answering because we tend to stare only at the tools that God is using and not let those point us back to him working, to his character and his goodness. We tend just not to see how. But a second reason why we don't think that God's answering us, and I think that this is the one that hit home to me as I was looking at this. Number two, we tend to just not like what he's answering. So sometimes we don't understand how he's answering, and we tend to look past it and not think that he was intervening. But a lot of the times we do see his answer. We just don't like it. It's like when I was younger and uh, for Christmas, you know, I'd get like 30 different presents, right? But all I wanted was this one present. All these 30 presents are awesome, but all I wanted was this one present. And I just became that, that little brat of a kid, right, who I am just, I'm not going to like any of these because I only wanted this one, and I didn't get this one. This is all I wanted, and I didn't get it, and therefore none of these count. Same thing happens to us spiritually. We look at God, we say, God, I want this one thing, and God answers with 30 other things. We say, God, those aren't what I want. I wanted this, and you didn't give me this. We tend to not see God answering us because we tend to not see how he's answering, the means that he's using, and we tend just not to like what he's responding. But the bottom line is God answers. Before we say anything else about God's character, he answers and responds 
to Habakkuk. He is there. You bring your lament to him. You bring your complaint to him. You bring your struggles to him, and he responds to you. Number two. Number two. Now diving into the text. A second anchor for our souls in the midst of storms that we can place our anchor down into, knowing that God's in control, knowing that we can rest secure in him. The second reality is that God has infinite plans and purposes that our finite minds can't understand. God has infinite plans. He has infinite purposes that our finite minds simply cannot understand. God is infinite. We are finite. God's going to answer. Verse 5, he answers Habakkuk, and he says four different commands. Look, observe, be astonished, and wonder. And by the way, in grammar, he's, he's saying that in the second person plural. So everyone, not just Habakkuk, but everyone. That's why he's going to say in chapter 2, write all this down, Habakkuk, so that everyone can see and everyone can read. And because Habakkuk obeys that command, we have his book in front of us, which is amazing. So God's going to say through Habakkuk to Habakkuk, but through him to everyone else, look, Be astonished, see, and wonder because I'm doing something in your days that you would not believe even if it were told to you. You wouldn't even believe it. You wouldn't even understand it. If I told you, if I answered everything that I'm doing, it would take millennia to understand and unravel every single thread about what I'm doing in this one moment. We say it often at our church, when God does one thing, he's doing a billion things. And that's what God's saying here. Habakkuk, that's a great question that you're raising, but you are so limited in your understanding that you couldn't even possibly comprehend what I am doing, even if I told you line by line what I'm doing. This is similar to God's response to Job. When Job's saying, God, what is going on? What is is happening? God says, let's go to the zoo. Let's just go look at some animals. Let's go look at some stars. Let's go look at creation. Why? What is God doing? He's saying, if I can do all these things, and you for sure can't, Job, then is it possible that I have purposes that are beyond your wildest comprehensions that you couldn't even fully understand because you have a finite mind? That's what God is saying to Habakkuk. Some people say, well, God doesn't really know what's happening. He's just as confused as Habakkuk. He doesn't really know. The answer would be clearly no. He knows everything. He knows exactly what happens, what's happening. And here in this verse, he's telling us, I have a plan. I have a purpose. I'm working. I know what's happening. I've heard it said this way. God does not drive an ambulance coming in after the wreck has happened and frantically trying to put everything together. God has victorious purposes for everything that he's doing or allowing or ordaining, and none of those purposes will ever fail. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. I just want to show you the character of our God. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8. Remember this, God says. Be assured, rest assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. And this is what God wants us to remember. I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things which have not yet been done. Saying my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. I call a bird of prey from the east and the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. God is always in control. He's always in control. But a God who is always in control with an infinite plan that our finite minds could not possibly comprehend is not a God worth trusting or worth worshiping unless that God who is in control is also at the exact same time always good and always trustworthy. And brothers and sisters, our God is both always in control and at the exact same time always good and always trustworthy. This is Jeremiah 29, 11. We reference this verse many times. This one's on uh, probably seniors out there who are graduating. They'll have a card maybe from a Christian family member, and it'll say this. I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope, to give you a future, not to discourage you or destroy you. The context of that is so key because God's saying that to his chosen people, to Israel, who was defeated by the Assyrians, who was taken out, led captive, and that's exactly what's going to happen to these people that Habakkuk is writing to. Babylon's going to come in and destroy them. 
And God's speaking to Jeremiah, and he's speaking to Jeremiah. Remember, they're contemporaries. Habakkuk and Jeremiah, they're working together. Uh, They are speaking to the same people, to, to Judah in the south, that Babylon's about to come in and take captive. And God says, I know it looks like this is purposeless, has no point, and I I know it looks like you are just going to be destroyed, and I don't care. But that's not true. I know the plans. It doesn't end here. It doesn't end in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the suffering. It doesn't end in this moment. You're going to be led captive to Babylon. You're going to be disciplined. You're going to be punished, and you're going to be brought back, and then the Messiah is going to come through you. I'm not going to let you die. I know the plans that I have for you. They are always good plans for God's people. Psalm chapter 145, verse 17, just a couple of verses for us. The Lord is righteous in all of his, his ways. He's righteous in every single way, and he's kind in all of his deeds. Even those moments that we struggle to understand, what are you doing, God? No, he's kind in all of his deeds. Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. He's good to all, and his mercies are all over, over all of his works. Psalm 18, verse 30, as for God, his way is blameless. There's no evil in his way. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good, O God, and you do good, and please teach me your statutes. You are good, and you do good, so please teach me. Psalm 119, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in your faithfulness you have afflicted me. The affliction that you're bringing upon me is not due to you being unfaithful or you being unloving. You're good in all of your righteous ways and you are loving and faithful towards me. And then Psalm 73, verse 1, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good to his people. He's always sovereign, he's always in control, and he's always good. Brothers and sisters, the events that unfold in our lifetime are equally in God's control. God says, look, observe, I'm doing something. God's doing the exact same thing in our midst today. Even with the coronavirus, even the events that are unfolding in our time, when things in this world seem to be destroying us, God is working something in us. I mean, just think about what's happening with the coronavirus. It wants to isolate us and tear us apart. And and what is it doing? It's, It's making us more intentional to reach out to one another, to be united together. And man, we cannot wait to get back together. We are going to have a different flavor of fellowship when we gather back together again because of the coronavirus. When God does one thing, he's doing a billion things. We don't know all that he's doing here. We could never even possibly conceive of everything that he's doing. He's infinite in his understanding, and we are finite and limited. But God's doing something. He's always up to something. There's a a, a tale of an African king who had a childhood friend. That friend was a, a constant optimist. I don't know if you have those people in your life, just always happy, always brimming with optimism. No matter what happened in life, he would always say this phrase, this is good. Always would say, this is good. It occurred that the king and his best friend, when they went hunting, on that hunting trip, the friend prepared the weapons, loaded the guns for his friend, the king. But unfortunately, he misjudged. And while shooting the gun, It exploded, and it took off one of the king's thumbs. And the friend, seeing what happened, said, this is good. Now, if you're like me, I would say, no, wrapping my hand in a bandage, blood everywhere, no. And the king did the same thing. How can this be good? Fumed the king, this is not good. So upon their return, he ordered that the friend be thrown into the deepest jail cell to die. Sometime later, the king went on another hunting trip not far from his destination. He was caught up by a group of vicious cannibals who took him back to their village to prepare a feast with his own flesh. But when they saw that his thumb was missing, they let him go. Because according to their tradition and their culture, it is bad luck to eat someone who does not have all the parts of his body. So the king went home. And upon the king's return, he immediately said to his friend, you're freed, that was amazing, you would not believe what had happened. And as the friend is stepping out of the jail cell and blinking in the light, the king said, I am so sorry, my dear friend, you were right all along, it was good that I lost my thumb, it was wrong of me to put you in jail. And the friend said, no, 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 and he started laughing, it was good that you put me in jail. King said, how could you say that it was good? And the friend said, because if you hadn't, I would have been right there with you, O king. I would have been right there with you. I would have been taken, and I do not have a part of me missing. I would have been taken by the cannibals. 
God has a purpose. He has a purpose, and his purpose is always good and for our greatest good. That's why God says, I have a plan, and you wouldn't even believe it if I told you, because there's so many aspects of this plan that have to unfold that it won't even make sense to you, Habakkuk. You're limited. You're limited. Why won't we understand? Why couldn't we understand? Because we're limited in our knowledge and we're limited in our understanding. That's why I said God is infinite and we are finite. God is infinite in his plans and purposes. We are finite. Psalm 39, verse 5. Behold, you've made my days as just mere handbreadths. They're just so small. My lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. We're here today, we're gone tomorrow. Psalm 103, verse 15, As for a man, his days are like grass as the flower of the field, so he flourishes when the wind has passed over it. It's no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. We're forgotten. All of Job 38 is God answering Job saying, Where were you? Where were you? Can you do this? Where were you when I made everything? And can you make everything? But if we're honest, when we say God's infinite and we're finite, and therefore our understanding is limited, our knee-jerk reaction to that statement is not, great, I'll worship God, and I'm fine with that. Our knee-jerk reaction is, I don't like being in the dark here. I don't like not knowing or understanding. We really don't like not understanding. But that's exactly when faith jumps in. That's when faith and what God is going to say to Habakkuk in the second response is the just will live by faith. When you don't fully understand, you still trust. One commentator says it this way, we don't like to be without explanation, but faith is willing, if need be, to be baffled and to bow low and worship in the dark. We don't like to be without explanation. We don't like to be in the dark, but faith is willing to bow the knee in the dark and say, God, I trust you. Faith is not like a a, a stick and God is our pinata where we just use faith to get whatever we want out of God. That would mean that we are God and we're just using God to serve our purposes. Faith is not something that you take upon yourself and say, I'm going to trust so that you will do. Faith simply says, I'm going to trust because I'm finite and you're infinite and I'm going to trust your good purposes. I'm going to rest and, and wait and rely upon you. Faith says, thy will, not my will be done. And if you're like me, you say, yeah, but it hurts to say that. It hurts to pray, your will be done, not mine. Because a lot of times his will hurts. His will hurts. But faith sees the difference between hurt and harm. Faith sees the difference between something that's hurtful and something that's harmful. Doctors cause hurt in order to prevent harm. And God's doing the exact same thing. He's going to raise up Babylon as a scalpel to prevent harm. It brings hurt, but the ultimate goal is to turn his people back to him. Sometimes we just think, well, I don't want the hurt. I'd rather go through the harm. But remember, lament, all these cries that we bring to God, these lament prayers are us saying, God, I want this provision, I want this provision, I want this provision, but then it turns from a provision prayer to a presence prayer. I just want your presence. I want you. Even if I have nothing, I just want you. And that's what God is doing. I'm going to take a scalpel and take out everything inside of your heart and mind and flesh that is not of me and give you fully just me. Faith is glad to worship God, knowing he is infinite and we are finite. Instead of saying, God, I I wish I knew everything, we drop our anchor down into God knowing everything. If I could fully understand God, some people ask me, well, uh, why can't we fully understand God's plans? We we can understand to a certain degree. Again, Deuteronomy 29, 29, there are things that have been revealed for us to know, to cling to, to understand, but there's a lot of mystery that belongs to the Lord. And some people kick against that. They say, God, I don't want the mystery. I want to know everything. But here's the, the, the reality of that statement. If you and I could fully understand and comprehend God, then we could be God. If we could fully understand God, we could be God. And if we could be God, if you and I could be God, then the universe is in a lot of trouble because I didn't even know uh, the, the socks that I was putting on this morning. I didn't know if they were matching or not. I couldn't tell. I put on one of the wrong uh, shoes this morning. I am a feeble, frail man. And so if I can be God, we're in a lot of trouble. God says, I've got this. I'm God. You're not. And instead of worrying We should worship. We should worship. God, I'm glad you're infinite. 
So God graciously hears and responds to our prayers and laments. We should drop anchor. God, I know you're listening. I know you seem far off, but I know you're listening. You hear, and I know you will respond. Secondly, we should drop our anchor into, God, I know you have a plan. You have a purpose. I want to look and observe and be astonished and wonder. I want to be amazed. I know I'm finite, and you're infinite, and therefore I'm going to trust you. Thirdly, God sees, clearly sees, the evil that is going on. This is another reality about our God that we can drop our anger into. God clearly sees the evil that's going on. He sees all of it. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He doesn't call it something other than what it is. Remember Habakkuk's question, how long are you going to make me see this violence, this wickedness? How long are you going to let it prevail? How long are you going to not do anything? God clearly sees all of that evil. He sees all of it, and he's not going to wait any longer. But we struggle with the wait. We struggle, right? We struggle. Honestly, if we assess our hearts, we struggle with, God, why aren't you doing anything now? We don't really like God's time frame and his timetable for acting. We wish his time frame was our time frame. God's time frame is rarely ever our time frames. What is God doing in the waiting? What is God doing? Let's meditate on these realities as we go through each and every one of them. Again, this is not exhaustive about the problem of evil, about evil existing when God's sovereign, but hopefully we can start scratching the surface a little bit, maybe have more dialogues about this in the days to come. Let's talk about some wrong answers to this question. Where is God when evil's happening? Why is he allowing it to happen? Wrong question, or wrong answers, three wrong answers. Number one, God must not see it. God must not see it. Well, no, he's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent, as we sang earlier this morning. He knows everything. He's present everywhere. He sees everything. Nothing can escape his view. So that's a wrong answer. Second, uh, why does God allow evil to happen? Well, he doesn't think it's wrong. He doesn't think it's that bad. No, God sees evil and he judges it. That's coming up not only in the rest of the sermon series, but even in this sermon itself. God is going to see the evil and he promises to judge it. The third wrong answer is, well, God must not be able to do anything about it. God must see it. God must call it evil, but he's powerless to stop it. All of those are wrong answers. God is not powerless to stop anything. He could stop it. So then the question is, why does he wait? Why does he wait? And again, there are so many reasons for why he waits. Again, each reason could be a sermon in and of itself. We're not going to make this exhaustive by any means. But before we answer some of the reasons, we need to set the foundation of God's heart and his character. His heart and his character. You need to know the heart of God, that he weeps and he mourns with his people as they cry in suffering and pain. It's not like God is standing up in heaven looking at us and saying, you know what, this is going to hurt, but I don't really care because it's going to provide some really good things. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt you for a little while, but it's ultimately to keep you from harm in the end, so who cares? Stop whining. God doesn't do that. It's like when you take your child to the doctor and the doctor has to give them a shot. You're not looking at your child saying, grow up, this is for your good. Don't you know that? You're holding the kid. You're saying, oh, it's, it's going to be okay. And sometimes you're crying. I remember I was crying with Chelsea. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I'm kind of doing this to you. And, and just she's looking up to me like, you've betrayed me. Why did you let him stick me with that needle? This is, it's for your good. You can't just say, stop. You're not stoic. God is not stoic in heaven. Even when he is using the suffering in our lives for good purposes, even though he knows the outcome is going to be good, it does not mean that in the moment of administering the suffering and pain, that he's saying, stop whining, because this is for your good, don't you know? He knows that we're finite. He knows we couldn't possibly understand. And therefore, he says, I'm going to weep with you in this moment of suffering. So know that the answers to these questions of what is God up to, none of them are stoic. None of them turn God's heart away from us. All of the suffering that we go through as his children, God goes towards us. He moves towards us in suffering. So why does he wait? Why does he wait? First of all, it's very interesting that this nation in Judah and our nation as well, who does everything to reject God, gets angry when bad things happen and he doesn't stop them, right? So it's so interesting that when things go bad, the nation that's just constantly rejecting God finally says, hey, where's God now? What is God up to? Let me give you a couple, just a couple. Number one, God is giving people time to repent. 
God's giving people time to repent. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses, uh, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. He is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So why does God tarry and not bring swift judgment and justice? Because if he did, that would mean that there would no longer be a chance for repentance. There would no longer be a chance for repentance. It's so interesting that people will say, why does God just allow evil to keep on happening without thinking that if God were to destroy all of the evil in the world, he would have to destroy me too. There's evil residing in me. And so if I'm saying, God, stop all the evil, well, what, to what degree are we talking about? Because if God stops all the evil and kills all the evil, he has to kill me too. This question betrays our understanding of the kind of evil that does still reside in all of us. Uh, some people will say, why does God let people suffer? Why does God let people suffer? And some people have even turned to the flood and say, see, this is unjust of God. Why does God let people suffer like that? When the flood was an answer to their first question, God, why are you just letting evil happen? God says, I'm going to bring the flood to punish evil. And even there, he's patient, right? He tells Noah to build an ark. It takes Noah about 70 years to build the ark. That's 70 years of people seeing him build this huge boat. That's 70 years that humanity has to repent. So people, on the one hand, will say, God, why are you allowing evil to exist? Why don't you just stop it? And then when God does reach in, after being gracious and patient, when he does reach in to stop it, people say, excuse me, how dare you, God? How dare you cause suffering like that? You can understand the limitations of our minds, of our finite humanity. God is patient, so he's giving people time to repent. That's why he's allowing evil to exist, because he's giving time for evildoers to repent. A second reason or a second answer to that question, why is he allowing bad things to happen? Well, for his people, for his children, he's developing godly character in them. He's developing godly character in them. We looked at this in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only this, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about proven character. Proven character brings hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. All of the trials that we go through, James 1 says we can rejoice in them because they're doing something. They're not purposeless. They're painful, but they're not purposeless. Romans 8, 28 and 29, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And I, I just have to say right here in this portion of the sermon, no pain is ever wasted for believers in this life. But that means if you are not a believer, if you don't love Jesus, like Romans 8 says, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, if you don't have a love for Christ that's greater than love for anything else in this world, then you do not have that promise. The pain that you experience in your life, if you do not love and treasure Jesus, that pain is purposeless. You don't have the promise that it's working together for your good because you are not one who loves Jesus. You're not under the umbrella of his kids. I want to plead with you. If you don't love Jesus, maybe you don't know why he's worthy of your love and affection. Don't, don't end this day without uh, talking to one of us, without communicating, without contacting us at our church or somebody through the live stream comments. Don't, don't end today without figuring out why is he worthy of my love and adoration and affection? What has he done such that he's worthy of my deepest love and deepest satisfaction in him alone? Only then, when you turn to him with love and grace, with the grace that he's poured out in your heart, only then will you have the promise that no pain will ever be wasted. So, God's doing something, and in doing it, he sees the evil around Habakkuk. He clearly sees it. He's working. He's always good. Nothing is hidden. There's so many other answers to the question of what, why is God allowing evil to happen. There's so many other answers that we could go through. Human uh, responsibility and free will is an answer. That God gives us decisions, and we usually make a mess of our lives when we're given those decisions. God allows that. And there is a day coming when God will finally say, enough's enough. And brothers and sisters, that's the day that we long for when we get to be with him, when there is no more possibility of sinning ever again. So many more things could be said. But the bottom line is, 
he clearly sees. God clearly sees what's going on. He knows he's waiting for a purpose. He's waiting for repentance. He's waiting for so many different reasons. And here he answers Habakkuk by saying, I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to bring judgment. Judgment should never be a surprise. Disobedience always brings sorrow. This is what sin causes. Sin always causes discipline for believers and judgment for non-believers. Remember when we studied the book of Judges, that cycle of I'm going to follow God, then I'm slipping into uh, idolatry, and then I turn and I cry out, God save me, and then God's going to save me. But nestled in there between salvation and sin is this period of being oppressed by a foreign nation. Sin always brings judgment. It always brings consequences. And it always, for believers, brings discipline. God had warned centuries earlier through Moses that if people turned away from his law, he says in Deuteronomy 28, 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle or a vulture, swooping down a nation whose language you cannot understand. God promised, if you do not abide by my word and you don't treasure me, discipline's going to come in. Judgment's going to happen. And here's the answer to that. So this shouldn't have been a surprise. Remember, Habakkuk says, God, what are you doing? Why are you waiting? And then God's going to say, I'm not waiting any longer. I'm bringing the Babylonians to judge Israel, to judge Judah. Next week, we'll look at Habakkuk's response. He's going to say, wait a second, time out. They're the bad guys. I know we're bad, but we're not that bad. They're the really bad guys. Why are you using them to judge us? Look at how bad these people are. Again, God knows. God knows the evil in the Babylonians. Verse 6, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're fierce. They're impetuous. They're impulsive. They're stealing, pillaging, plundering people. They march throughout the whole earth. They seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They're dreaded. They're feared because of this. And they are their own authority. Look at verse 7. Their justice and authority originate in themselves. They don't trust God. They don't worship God. They are their own gods. Their horses are swifter than the leopards. Uh, I, I don't know what that means. I'll give you what the commentary says. Uh, leopards apparently are nimble and agile. Didn't know that. Don't think I ever want to experience that personally. But leopards are nimble and agile. So their horses are even more nimble and more agile than that. They're used to get into any location, any situation. They can get in and out of it. They're keener than wolves in the evening. Uh, the picture there is that a, a wolf has gone all day without eating. They're starving. They're hungry. And you don't want to be a, a, a sheep, a deer, a, a bunny rabbit. You don't want to be any of those animals in the evening when the wolf is starving. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. They fly like an eagle. They can see, they can spot, and they swiftly move in. All of them come for violence, verse 9. They love violence. This is what God's saying. I know, I know they love violence. I know that Judah loves violence, and Habakkuk's saying violence is happening everywhere. God, why aren't you stepping in? And here he says, I know that Judah loves violence. I also know Babylon loves violence. And I'm going to use the one to judge the other, and then I will judge Babylon. They love violence. And the horde of faces moves forward. They're like one man collecting captives like sand. They just go by and they scoop up sand in their hand. They're just collecting numerous captives. They mock kings and rulers. They laugh at every fortress. They heap up rubble to capture it. They break things. This is what you do to try and get into a walled city. You break a bunch of things. You put it in front of the wall. You make a little ramp out of the rubble and you just go right in. God says, I see what they do. I know who they are. I see their evil wickedness. They're mocking kings. We actually know that when the Babylonians come in to Jerusalem at the end in 586, they take Zedekiah, who is the king at that time. They parade all of Zedekiah's sons in front of him. And then they viciously murder all of his sons. And then they gouge out Zedekiah's eyes right after that, saying, the last thing that you're going to see forever burned in your memory is your sons being murdered. God sees this. God knows this. He's not turning a blind eye to it. He says, verse 11, they're going to sweep in through uh, like the wind, but they're going to pass on. They're not going to exist forever. They're not going to last forever. And then he says, they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. So he says, I see all the evil. I know this people group. I'm using them, but not because I like them or because they're good or because I agree with what they're doing. I'm just simply using who they are to bring about discipline in my people. But it's not going to end there. He's not pleased with it. And that brings us to point number four, the final reality. 
Well, we're going to talk about this at length in a few weeks because God's going to curse Babylon over and over and over again in chapter 2. But the bottom line, number four, you can drop your anchor into this reality about who God is. God will judge evil. God will judge evil. So we start at the beginning. God hears our laments. He hears our cries. He's going to respond. You can put your anchor into that reality. God is infinite in his plans and purposes. We're finite. We're not going to understand it. And we can put our anchor into that reality. God, you have a plan far beyond my possibility to comprehend and understand it. Your ways are higher. My understanding is very lowly. I don't get it. And that's okay. That's where faith comes in. God also clearly sees the evil that's going on. He sees every single act of evil. And he's not uh, just standing by idly just saying, this is okay. When God is inactive, that doesn't mean he's okay with what's going on. And that leads us to point number four. Drop your anchor into this reality. God will judge evil. Even in what he's saying here in verse 11, he says all of these terrible things about who Babylon is. And then he says, middle of verse 11, but here's everything, who they are and what they're going to do, but they're going to be held guilty. They're not innocent. They're going to be held guilty. Why? Well, summed up from God's perspective, their strength is their God. They themselves are their own God. They trust in themselves. They worship themselves. They are their own authority. And so God says, I'm going to hold them guilty. He's using Babylon to discipline Judah, and then he's going to punish Babylon. God calls evil evil, and he judges evil. Again, this is a sermon unto itself, but we can see right here in this verse The sovereignty of God does not eliminate human responsibility or accountability. The time of accountability, the time of accounting and judgment just merely varies from person to person. But God's sovereignty does not nullify human responsibility. This is so important. We see God's sovereignty over all things. He says, I'm using, I know, I have a purpose and a plan, I'm using them. And many people say, well, if God's using them, then therefore they can't be guilty. They can't be held guilty because they didn't do anything. God used them. But see... The point of that question, that line of argumentation, is thinking that God somehow is forcing them to do the evil. We so often think this way. I I hear many times people say, I don't think I want to trust God. I don't really like God because remember in the story of uh, Moses and and Pharaoh with the Exodus, the Bible says Moses, uh, Pharaoh was, uh, his heart was hardened by God. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's a true statement. The Bible says that. But not after Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Many times God is bringing these plagues to say, please repent, please turn, please stop. And Pharaoh hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart. And so God, in doing those plagues yet again, knows this is just going to keep on callousing Pharaoh's heart. Many people have this idea that Pharaoh is saying, God, I want to repent, but all of a sudden I have this desire to fight against God. God doesn't force anyone to do evil. If he did, then the evil that Babylon is doing should be judged ultimately in God's person and work because God's the one forcing them, but God's not forcing them at all. They are guilty. Babylon is guilty, meaning what? Meaning that they weren't forced into this. God is a just God. If they were innocent of these deeds and they're just being forced to do things, you know, they're killing people. I don't know why I'm doing this. This just robotically is happening. Then God's the one who made it happen. And therefore, God would be the one who would be held guilty. God does not do any evil. Otherwise, he would be the guilty one, not Babylon. God is simply allowing Babylon's evil to work out his own purposes. And God will never let the guilty go unpunished. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. You remember, this is when Moses says, God, I want to know you. I want to see you. Pass by. Let me see your glory. And God says, I will pass by. He hides him in the cleft of the rock. And then as he passed by, he proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, who forgives transgression, who forgives sin, yet by no means he will leave the guilty unpunished. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. And that's what he says here. They're not going to turn to me. God knows that. And so he says they will be held guilty. 
you might say, well, these points are all well and good, and I know that they're from the Bible, and I know that they're biblical, but I still don't understand why I'm going through the suffering that I'm going through. Just two things in conclusion. Number one, it's okay. It's okay to be in a place where you say, I don't understand. It's okay to be there. We don't have to have every answer. And Jesus knows what you're feeling. Remember on the cross, he cries out, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to ask why. But number two, remember that the greatest gift that was ever given to the entirety of the world was given at the cross through the moment of greatest suffering and agony possible. God saved the world through a minor key, as it were. It wasn't used through grandiose, uh, just bombastic fanfare of just beautiful, lovely notes. It was used in the most horrific event in all of human history when God brought our punishment that we deserve upon his son and punished his son in our place. Salvation came through suffering. Because of those bad circumstances, salvation comes to us. And brothers and sisters, if you can look to Jesus in that suffering, if you can look to him in those moments, you can know without a shadow of a doubt your pain is never wasted. Your pain is never wasted. He's working for your good. He clearly sees what's going on. He's waiting for people to repent. He's waiting to work in your life something that you couldn't possibly understand because he's infinite and you're finite. Evil will be judged. It was either judged in Christ on the cross and your punishment that you deserve is put upon him and therefore it was judged once for all for you or it will be judged forever in the lake of fire. Evil will be judged. And that's why I just want to plead with you. If you don't know right now, if you were to die tonight, you were to stand before God and God would say, why should I let you into heaven? If you don't know the reason why you have to be in heaven, your answer to that question today is the day of salvation. Turn to Christ. Trust in him. Find your hope in him. But if you know, if you know and cherish and treasure the gospel, then my friends, you can look at Christ on that cross and you can know without a shadow of a doubt, no pain that you are experiencing is ever, ever wasted. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing kindness towards us in answering. You answer us. You reveal to us Uh, the answers that you give to Habakkuk, and you remind us even through that answer that you answer us in our distress. God, you've reminded us this morning you're infinite. We've sung so many songs about it, and we're going to sing another. You are infinite, and we are not. But instead of getting worried about that, instead of being angry about our limited understanding, we rest, we worship, and we know that you have good purposes. You are always sovereign, and you are always good. God, we know you clearly see the evil that's going on in our lives. And there's a day coming when it will be no more. You will judge evil. And so we rest. And we look forward to Habakkuk 2, where you speak to Habakkuk and say, the just will live by faith. The righteous will will trust. So God, grant us faith, even as we sing, to stare at your sovereignty, to stare at how infinite you are, and to trust in you and you alone.